Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Traxler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. This week, Eric and I continue our conversation with David Sanger, New York Times senior writer, winner of three Pulitzer Prizes, and a two-time best-selling author. This week, we continue our conversation about his latest book, The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age, which releases this fall as an HBO documentary. This week, David shares his list of things that we must do when it comes to cyber warfare and how secure he thinks the upcoming elections are. This episode picks up where we left off last week. David, in my mind, I have simplified and reduced the damage of major breaches, such as Snowden, down to the leaked documents themselves. But after reading your book, I believe it's a lot more than that. Can you talk about the damage of a breach beyond the documents? Well, I think there are several. Uh, I mean, first of all, we've all gotten inured to the letter that you get. You probably got one after OPM saying, your data has been breached. I've given you a year's worth of free data breach insurance. Right? I think only if you were a government employee, you just get notified if you were not, I believe. I got more with Equifax, Home Depot, and a couple of others than I got from the OPM breach. Yeah, that's probably right. Well, you know, in the OPM breach, it was a ridiculous letter anyway, because they never mentioned that it was China, something you might want to know. And as if Xi Jinping was interested in your visa card, Eric, I mean... I think he's got enough cash to keep himself going for a little while, okay? I, it, it, it told you the government wasn't even thinking correctly, or at least in their public you know, outreach to you, about what the importance of this breach was. But, Carolyn, you've raised a really interesting question. So the daily breaches just make you feel vulnerable all the time, okay? That's one thing. The data manipulation, that's the stuff I worry about. Right. Because they're much more subtle. If you redirect that missile, you are probably not going to discover that your missile's been redirected till you've launched it. Right. If you change that database in the Pentagon with the blood types, you're probably not going to discover that the, da- the, the blood types have been changed until someone dies. Right. So that's worrisome. On the offensive stuff, it's great that the United States is figuring out how to make use of this new technology. If everybody else is doing it, we have to. But we are nowhere right now in setting the sort of international standards about what's off limits and what's not. So if we want to say, okay, let's sit down with the Russians, the Chinese, maybe a few other big actors, and come to some general agreement, sort of arms control agreement that says, okay, what's off limits, guys? Power grids. Okay, because if you cut off the power, it's probably going to um, kill people. Yeah, it's going to kill people, particularly people the most the most vulnerable, right? People in hospitals, people in nursing homes, people who are shut into their houses. Well, right? and, and even people who need food. I mean, at some point, the food supply system, like in, in a couple of days, it lasts. shuts yeah, down. That's right. Uh, I mean, if you saw runs on the uh, on supermarkets just with with the early days of coronavirus, imagine what you would see there. And we had information, we had power, we had the ability to keep the food at home 
That's right. It was frozen. I mean, we, we had, it, it was a great drill, but it was only 20% of the real problem in my that, opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So, uh, what, what's happened here now is that if you want to get the arms control agreement, you have to say, okay, we're going to give up attacks on, on the electric grid. How about election systems? Should we all agree that we won't attack election systems? Anyone want to sign up for that? So forth and so on. Yeah, and that was where we saw Obama finally say, you know what, this is an attack on our our very fiber. That's right. I mean, if you can't hold free elections, the core of a democracy is undercut. Yeah, but okay. So so then imagine for a second. Didn't we already try this? And well, nobody else got on board? No, actually, the UN tried it. A bunch of countries okay. got on board early on and then began to walk away. But think about us, okay? Supposing you took that proposal to the intelligence agencies. Well, I think the first thing they might say is Then no what do we ta- do? <laughs> yeah, like no attacks on electric grids. Has anybody briefed you guys on Nitro Zeus, which is the secret US plan to take out Iran's power grid if we got into a conflict with them in hopes that we wouldn't have to bomb them. It might actually save lives. Yeah. And that's scary, too, because doesn't our enemy now have the playbook on Nitro Zeus? Uh, Our enemy may, but our enemy knew that we were capable of turning out their power grid. So, you know, when I hear people say, oh, you've revealed a great American capability, the first thing I say to them is, I'm perfectly willing to hold back on publishing something that we have reason to believe the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans don't know about. Turning off power grids, I think they've figured that one out. And by the way, Stuxnet, which I wrote, you know, the first big pieces about how the U.S. government got at it. What tipped the Iranians off to the existence of Stuxnet? That the code leaked because we and the Israelis made a coding mistake. Or one of us did. It, it's interesting. It, in, in cyber, there's almost an equivalency between nation states at this point. I mean, you could argue we're slightly ahead of the Russians or, or the Chinese or, you know, have, have many more uh, people and more capability and more time on their hands, whatever it is. But there's, there's a general equivalency, yet we as a nation have the most to lose. And, and that's where I think we should be incentivized to come to some some level of, of assured deterrence because it doesn't get any better for us. I mean, we have absolutely the most to lose, in my opinion. And, and David, you talk about that in the book, uh, you know, the five things the government must acknowledge as getting to some level of, uh, I don't know if I call it peace or I don't know what you'd even call it. Yeah. I mean, what I get at in the book are what are the things that we need to do to get a semblance of a balance of power here? And look, this is hard. In the early days of the nuclear age, we thought we had a huge lead. And then we woke up one day and the Soviets had just conducted a nuclear test. And then the Chinese did. And then, of course... France, Britain had it. That was fine with us. But then India, Pakistan, Israel got it, right? So we got to a point now where there are nine states that either have declared or undeclared nuclear weapons capability. We have at least 35 states and probably closer to 40 or 45 that have sophisticated cyber capability. And yet we're acting as if because we've got the latest and greatest, it's not really an issue. 
And I don't get that. Yeah, well, that's your premise number one, right? Essentially, right. our cyber capabilities are no longer unique. They're certainly right. not unique enough to be a difference maker. Absolutely. Absolutely. So number two issue that I think you've then got to think about is if you believe that you've got a lead, but it's diminishing, isn't it in your interest to get to those understandings and agreements and your deterrent capability first? Because as that lead goes away to vanishes to nothing, nobody else is going to sign up. Right? Right. Your, your negotiation power weakens over time as yep. your adversaries become stronger. And this is a hell of a lot cheaper for them to attack or to leverage than buying kinetic weapons. Absolutely. Right. The third thing is we've got the focus of our how we spend money on defenses completely wrong. Now, COVID's taught us in the past few months that what we thought was just a public health problem is actually a national security problem, right? We sent the Pentagon and the NSC, the National Security Council and others, to think about biological weapons that would get dropped on the United States. And we didn't think about the dangers of tourists coming back from Wuhan or teenagers on spring break and whether or not it can have the same effects. In the cyber realm, we're guilty of the same thing. We are spending the overwhelming amount of our defense budget on weapon systems we will never use and that we that do not give us a whole lot of defenses. And we are spending far too little money, but I would argue more importantly, far too little mind share on the vulnerabilities created by things like cyber, which, as you say, Eric, are so cheap that it levels the playing fields for governments that couldn't spend a hundredth or a thousandth of what we spend on our military. Now, I, I agree. I mean, you often hear about the, the, the saying where the, the military is fighting the last war. And one of the things you observe is a, a lot of the people who are in power, who are making decisions, they came up through you know, the first Gulf War where there was essentially no cyber um, or before that, right? They're, they don't have the context, the framework that some people would to understand how, how the, the battlefield is shifting, right? The next war is absolutely going to have cyber. It'll probably have space. We've never had a war in cyber or space, like, like an all-out declared war. Um, and I think that's going to be challenging to us as we have aircraft carrier battle groups everywhere that are ineffective to stop an attack on our power grid. That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, there is no major military plan for any major military power that doesn't have cyber built into the first 24 hours, right? And that makes a huge difference. So one of your points, too, is just that we've got to get better with attribution. And, and like you've said a few times, you know, name who did these attacks. But in your book, you also unpack the complexities of why we're not naming, because then we reveal um, how, how we know that it was them. You know, I actually think that uh, this is a, a piece of thinking we need to change, that we want to name everybody, because uh, you're not going to create your deterrent effect, and you're not going to create international alliances that 
sort of form up against the Russians or the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans, whoever the cyber actor is, unless you're willing to get out and attribute the attack. And there's only one offender on this that's worse than the U.S. government. The U.S. government, actually, I have to give credit to the Trump administration. They have done a better job of getting out and naming countries that attacked. They named North Korea on WannaCry. They named Russia on NotPetya. They've done a better job than the Obama administration did on that. Okay, I, I think they've been disorganized in their way they've thought about cyber, but this I think they did well and did it early on. They actually dismantled a pretty good cyber team that they had at the beginning of the White House. Um, but that, that team did get this, that together. The group that's worse is corporate America, right? Because the fir- you guys see this all the time, I'm sure. The first time there's a big attack on a company, the first thing the company thinks is – how do I hide this from everybody? Because it will yeah. undercut confidence in the company and it might and send stock our price. Sh- and the stock price. And the only effective um, element against this has been the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has required companies to disclose attacks that are big enough that they might actually be material. But companies spend a lot of time figuring out how to hide it. If I was running the world, I would actually require companies to reveal significant cyber attacks with the penalty being that if they fail to do so, jail time for senior executives. That's the only way that you would actually get a real understanding of the nature of the problem. And guess what? If companies knew they had to reveal it, they would then spend the money to keep it from happening. Well, you also have to prevent them. You know, there has to be a regulatory component that prevents litigation also. I mean, that's a big fear. Um, you, you've got to open up things like access to, to data. Like, can, can they allow the government in a healthcare breach to have access to HIPAA data? Who, who can? How do you control? There, you know there's what? so many components, Eric, but we can do this. The government has access to HIPAA data anyway. It's called Medicare. You know, I mean, we've got we've got tons of access to the data that the U.S. government has anyway. So, um, but I've seen I it, think it, there are it, ways it when, to do it. when you're in the middle of this crisis as a corporation. I mean, I've seen this. I've watched it from from both the government and the, and the corporate side and the interfacing. There's just this unknown, and you're you're in this time crunch, and you're working, and you don't know. Can I bring in NSA? Can I bring in DHS? What's the impact of that? And then FBI comes in and who's in charge? And it gets very squirrely very quickly, David. Yep. yep. Like really quickly. And then what do you tell the board? And, and how much do we disclose? And when do we disclose? Right? Yep. But they've got to disclose. Uh, look, there are a lot of small attacks you don't have to worry about each time. But if there's something that's a significant breach, you're not going to begin to get to the deterrent effect until – it's revealed and you're not going to get companies to actually spend the money they need to spend on resilience, not stopping the attack, but recovering from it. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and we've, what we've seen with Sony there. and Equifax and, 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 you know, Starwood, I mean, they've all recovered. The share prices have recovered. All yeah. of these companies have come back, right? It's, it's, it's a ding on the risk side. You know, it definitely costs them money and some prestige, but they come back. Yeah. So, David, I mean, there's so many things I want to keep talking to you about, like quantum computing. Um, Well, did we get through the list of five things that he recommends the government must acknowledge? 
no, but the clock is beating us. So do let's, we want to finish let's that Let's hit the list? final. Okay. We, we talked about attribution. David, yeah. you talk about rethinking the wisdom of reflexive security around our capabilities. Right. Want to articulate, amplify that a little bit or? Yeah, that, uh, that we, the more that you explain your capability, the more you're actually going to have some deterrent effect out of it. Right. You attack me. This is what I'm capable of doing back to right. you. Right. And we did this in the nuclear world. You know, yes. before I went to write this book, I reread a book I had not read since college. And college was a little while ago. Um, and it was called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. Henry Kissinger wrote it. It was the first popular book for the American public about how nuclear weapons change the way we had to think about strategy, just as cyber changes the way we have to think about it. And I went to see Kissinger um, before I was – just as I was getting going on the writing and I explained to him what I was doing and he looked at me and he said – I can't do the accent right. But basically he said, oh, David, cyber is so much more complicated because in the nuclear world, we knew a, the small number of countries that had the capability and we knew the names of everybody who had launch authority. That's all missing in cyber. Yeah, What's next on your list, Eric? Last one. Well, it's your list, but the world needs to set up norms of cyber behavior focused on principles is kind of how I summarized it. Yeah. So this gets back to what I was describing before. You need to be able to have some principles about what you're not willing to do during peacetime and then what you're willing to do in wartime, which might be a different list, and get people to sign up to it the way we've signed up to arms control on nuclear weapons, but also the way we've agreed to ban almost all use of landmines, right? Because we don't want them planted and kids to step on them a generation later. The way we all agreed on biological weapons, the way we all agreed on chemical weapons. And yeah, have there been breaches? Absolutely. But by and large, those systems have worked. And so there's no immediate evidence that they wouldn't work in the cyber realm if you get the attribution piece of it right. This is the tough one for me because as you just you just named a bunch of examples where it mostly works, but it's not 100%. And just my mentality always wants the 100%. Well, but I think always, you're not going to get, get 100%. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I have to get used to. And there's always workarounds, right? Just like how China has come in and just bought shares in companies. So they get to see the tech first. So that's how they've worked around not being able to own these companies. From an espionage perspective, yes, yeah. and maybe even sabotage. You're absolutely right, Carolyn. But the one thing as I thought about this, and I thought about it the first time I read the book, and I thought about it as I was preparing for this discussion, at least if we get to number five, we set up norms, we're communicating, we have a forum. And I thought more and more about it. I don't know of any really good forums today where we're discussing cybersecurity, cyber attacks with foreign nation states, other we're doing than through it the at, press. We're doing it at the United Nations ineffectively. That's probably we, the best I could come up with. That's right. Uh, there are some well-meaning but largely academic-run operations there. It's called a, a, it's a group of experts uh, that meet there. There are some other efforts done in the private sector to get it going, but it doesn't have the energy behind it that we had behind those other examples, nuclear, biological, chemical, and so forth. Nor the constraints. But within the last couple minutes we have, Carolyn, go for it. I, I would love to hear you talk about the upcoming election and uh, 
the possibility of securing it, sure. David? No, it's a great question. It's something we're spending a lot of time on and uh, will be covered in that HBO doc that I mentioned as well. So one of the big changes in the election this year is that we're thinking a lot more people are going to be casting ballots by uh, basically what we used to call absentee ballots, but you may not be absentee. It may simply be that you don't want to take the virus risk of standing in line in a school gymnasium or a church or uh, some kind of government office and waiting to press your fingers on a on a uh, polling machine uh, that uh, the last 150 of your neighbors came in and pressed their fingers on as well. Okay. So the good news about that is it will force us to more paper backup, which is great. The bad news is that once you are in the world of doing uh, a paper ballot from home, a mail-in ballot, you are more dependent than ever on the integrity of the registration system because it's that registration system that is used to send out ballots to your house, Carolyn, and to your house, Eric, and to make sure that it's up to date and that you're not sending it to somebody who used to live there and that you recognize that one of you may have changed states in the past four years and so forth. And we're worried about that registration system because we know that in 2016, the Russians grabbed data out of Arizona and Illinois, out of their systems. We then thought that they were into 21 states. And if you go into the State Department, I'm sorry, into the um, Intelligence Committee's report on the 2016 election, they now believe the Russians were inside all 50 states registration systems. That doesn't mean that they messed with it. We have no evidence that they messed with it. Okay. But it doesn't take messing with all of the registration systems. If I can get into a couple of key counties in a couple of swing states and mess with that, I will have conducted what's called a perception hack, which means that you will assume that every other county has been messed with also, even if it wasn't. And then you question the credibility of the election, and that gets to the root of it. And what are you hearing President Trump do already? Questioning the credibility, yep. He's already said this will be the most rigged election ever, okay? Now, if there's an overwhelming vote one way or the other, if Joe Biden wins in a blowout or if Donald Trump wins in a blowout, I don't think it's a particularly big issue. If it's a close election, and most of our recent elections have been close— it could be a huge issue. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that, David? What I say to that is this. We've been worried about the election machines. I'm a little bit worried about the election machines, but the biggest protection we have on our election infrastructure and our election machine infrastructure is that it's different in all 50 states. And so hacking in to that system would require you to have a different hack in all 50 states. And actually, every county is different. Some cities are different. So the fact that our system is so disparate, so backward, so half analog, half digital, it's actually a form of protection. The registration system worries me because that's the, the outward facing part. I can go on a public website, okay, which means I can go in and attempt if I was a skillful hacker, to do a ransomware attack. 
remember what happened in Atlanta, in Baltimore, in all those cities and towns in Texas last summer when there were ransomware attacks, criminal, not state, we think, by and large, that just jammed up the system so you couldn't get any data out of it. You couldn't pay your taxes. You couldn't go you know, apply for a building permit. You couldn't pay your parking fines. They just so shut forth. them down. They just shut them down and issued a ransom demand. So that's why it's critical that every city, town, state have multiple backups of their registration system, printed out an analog version and as well as a digital version. And DHS has been working really hard on solving that problem, but we don't know how, how broad that and effective that has been. And we probably won't know until election day. And that goes back to your red line that you talked about. I mean, some level, somebody's got to draw that. That's right. But, you know, count the number of presidential speeches you've heard in the past four or eight years on that topic. I bet there are dozens. I come up with zero. Really? Presidential speeches warning foreign states not to mess with our election system. Oh, a couple well, on by the election system. I'm with you. On the election system. I agree. On the election yes. system. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back to the hopeful note that our systems are so archaic and out of date that um, we've got some protection there. Yeah. <laughs> but Let's I, hope I, so. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us, David. This has been just a fascinating conversation. This is great, guys. I've enjoyed it, and I will happily come back after we have our when we have our documentary out we're a little closer to the election we can pick it up then can't Wonderful. wait to see that thank yeah you. Great. yeah thank you thanks thank David. you and thanks to all of our listeners please join us wherever you get your podcast share with your friends until next week see you eric goodbye carolyn thank you david thank you guys thanks for joining us on the to the point Cybersecurity podcast brought to you by force point for more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 